0: will be in this passage this week and next week. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That you would not only, Lord, grant it to us to understand your word, but that you would empower us to obey it. That we would heed your commands and that we would do your will. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have finally moved on from chapter 12. But we are not moving out of the practical realm. Paul is still giving us instruction on how to live the Christian life. He is moving on to an important and a difficult matter. Government, authority, and the Christian. Today we will look at why Paul chooses to address government here in the book of Romans. Then we will see the foundational principle that God has established government. Next week, we will see how the Christian is to respond. But we can only rightly understand our response if we first see God at work. And so we come to this text that is a bit controversial. We're not exactly in the election time of year. There's still a few months until November, although it seems now to me that the election season is now year-round, decade-round. It seems that there is always an election before us. The day after an election is held, the campaigns begin for the next session. And so this is an important thing for us to see God's perspective on government. And this morning, then, I'd like us to look at two aspects of this passage. First, we need to see the preliminary considerations that give context to this passage. And then second, we need to see the foundational principle that government is of God. Government comes from God. Let's start then by looking at the preliminary considerations that will help us as we seek to understand and obey this passage. The first question that we would ask is, why is this here? Why does Paul take up the subject of government here? After all, this is a controversial passage, and it's not just controversial in its content. No it's controversial because of its content. It's not just the fact that we're not sure what it says but it's controversial in the fact that it even exists at this spot in the book of Romans. So for example many commentators see this as an interruption into the flow of Paul's letter. They wonder why Paul turns to an earthly focus here when he has been discussing spiritual things like the law of love, both in chapter 12 and in what follows in chapter 13. Why does he turn now to the Christian's duty about earthly things? There are others who point out that Jesus' name does not even appear in this passage, as if somehow that means that the passage is unimportant or that it's not genuine. You see, this is what people do. They come to a passage that they don't want to deal with, that they don't want to obey, and they find reasons to take it out of your Bible. Now, this is an important lesson for us about the Bible. Those who want to attack the authority of the Bible will use any means at their disposal. People who do not believe in Jesus and do not believe in his claims, will suddenly be concerned that he's not mentioned enough in a passage. People will decide that Paul should have thought a certain way, and they will use that as proof that a portion of Scripture is fake, that Paul never wrote it, for example. And then, of course, there are people who decide what God should be concerned about. And when the Bible speaks to something else, then they use that to prove that a portion of the Bible is unimportant because it doesn't deal with things, according to them, that God should be dealing with. Now, in all of this, there is one common theme. And that is a rejection of the inspiration and authority of the Bible. When arguments are made that you should ignore a portion of the Bible, you need to look first at the principles. Is there an authority that is being set up above the Bible? Is God being told what he can and can't say? Or even what he would and wouldn't say? If that is the case, then you need to reject these arguments. They stand on faulty ground. They are attacking the ground of the inspiration and the authority of the Scriptures. And so if we are to submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible, we must not go looking for ways to reject portions of it. It is an undeniable truth that as soon as you begin to take anything out of the Bible, anything goes. There is no stopping what comes out. Because you have just placed yourself as an authority over the Bible. Instead, what we are to do is to try to see what the Holy Spirit is telling us. And why He's telling that to us in this particular place. Now this is especially important when we come to sections of the Bible that challenge us. Because it is far too easy to simply say, Well of course the Bible can't mean that. Or... I can't believe that God would actually say that. And so therefore we dismiss what God is saying to us. Now, this does not mean that we check our reason at the door. We are to be thinking Christians. Because after all, the Bible is God's word. That means that God is communicating to us in a reasonable, logical fashion. God wants us to understand what he's saying, and he uses reason to do that. The Bible is not a series of disconnected statements that we jump to to hope to find the answer to a question. Too many Christians view the entirety of the Bible as kind of a giant book of Proverbs. Pithy statements that are scattered throughout, in which you leap to one and then the other to find an answer to a question you might have. You don't need to know the context. You don't need to know what the author is doing or what has come before. Instead, you just simply leap to find an answer to an intriguing question. Now, this is especially important here in chapter 13 because for many people, this passage is a detached, go-to passage to answer questions about civil government. It's as if, you could understand this passage completely apart from its context. Which is, of course, not the case, because Paul did not drop this from heaven. Paul writes this in the middle of a letter that he is sending to a church at this point, in this place, with this context. So then the question comes, why does Paul bring this subject up now? Well, I think first, it fits the context. Dealing with government is not artificial at this point. It is not as if Paul is interrupting his train of thought or forcing this subject upon us. If we see this great truth, it will help us to understand the Christian's relationship to government. Our relationship with government and our dealing with government is a part of obeying the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You remember that back in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? Paul told us that that is what we are to do. This follows in that vein. Our obedience, our obligation to government falls within the Christian's obedience to God's will. Christians are transformed by the renewing of their mind, but that transformation does not do away with the world. I imagine that yesterday you ate. And I imagine that today you'll have something to drink. And I dare say that this evening you will go to sleep. You are not somehow removed from the reality of the world. Just because you are a Christian does not mean you do not live in the world. That you do not have practical matters that come before you. And so as we look at this subject we have to understand that the transformation of the Christian does not transport him out of the world, but rather it transforms him to live in the world as a child of God. That's an important point. Paul also brings this up now because it meets the immediate context. That is, how do we live peaceably with others And not take vengeance. This was the end of chapter 12. Paul told us that we are not to take vengeance. But rather to leave it to the Lord. Because vengeance is mine says the Lord. But God's justice. His enacting of justice. His vengeance. Does not only happen in the end times. It certainly does happen at the end of all history. But God also uses his providence in the world today. He doesn't wait To right all wrongs until the end of all time. This context helps us to understand our passage. We also need to see that it fits a need that Paul would have in discussing this with the church at Rome. The immediate need that Paul has is to show one way that God is active in the world. But that is also contextual. He's speaking to the church at Rome that we have seen before is made up of Gentiles and Jews. It was situated in the heart of the Roman Empire. You might think of Rome as sort of a combination, New York City, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. rolled into one. It was the heart of the empire. It was where all the power resided and emanated out from. It was also the largest city. It was significant, and the church is there right at the heart of the empire. Now, the Jews at this time were notoriously known as bad citizens. That's because the Jews had taken God's injunction in Deuteronomy 17 to not place a foreigner over them as a king to mean that the Jews could never be ruled by anyone who wasn't a Jew. And so therefore, they viewed as completely illegitimate any authority over them that wasn't Jewish. They thought they did not have to obey the laws, that they didn't have to listen to the king, that they didn't have to listen to the authorities, because it wasn't Jewish. Now, as we step back and look at their interpretation of this passage, Deuteronomy 17, in light of history, we see that this doesn't make sense. Because after all, God took the Jews out from the land and put them under foreign authorities. The Bible's very clear that that was the action of God. It was not a mistake. It was not a happenstance. They came under the Babylonians. Because God put them under the Babylonians. And God through the prophet Jeremiah. Told them that they were to seek the welfare of the city where they were. That they were to be good citizens. And so as we come to the time of the rule of Rome. God has placed the Jews Under Roman rule, his providence rules. Again, this is not an accident. And so what we have here is Paul needing to give direction to Christians who might be tempted to follow in the same path as the Jews, to be the worst of all citizens in a kingdom or an empire. Instead, Paul wants to counteract this. He wants us to know as Christians that we can and we should be the best of all citizens in a state. That's why this is here. The second question that we must consider is what does this tell us? What is this passage? Telling us Now, there is a very practical point to be made, that the Christian is not exempt from this world. I know that sometimes, if you're like me, you wish you could just make the world fly away. That all of the problems that surround us, with jobs and finances and recessions and wars and weather extremes, that it would all just go away and we could just live a peaceful life tranquil life in Christ well the reality of the situation is that's not where the Lord has placed you that's not where the Lord has placed me we are here at this place at this time in this nation because of the providential will of God and so it is a temptation both common to the Christians in Rome and to Christians in our day to say that because of a Christian is a citizen of heaven, that believers should have nothing to do with the world. That we should stay as far away from the world as we can. That we shouldn't watch the news. That we shouldn't be involved in government. That we shouldn't be involved in our society. That we should be as separate as possible from the world. There's also a temptation because as Christians we are to look to eternal things, to the return of Jesus Christ, to the end of all history, to think about the fact that the history of the world is coming to an end, and therefore we shouldn't care about it. Perhaps the most famous way that this has been expressed is that Christians should not have any involvement at all in any civil matters because you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. There is a theological point here that Paul is trying to make to us. And that point is that the gospel works in every circumstance and place. It works under every government. Now this is a powerful encouragement to you and to me. It tells us that nothing in the world can stop the gospel not monarchies, not socialism, not communism, not dictatorships, not democracy, not plutocracy, not media-driven matters. Nothing can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop you from living the gospel life. Remember that Paul is telling Christians in Rome to live the gospel life in a totalitarian state. Rome was just as totalitarian as the Soviet Union or as any other dictatorship. There were some of the trappings of laws and legality, but basically the emperor's word was law. We see this throughout history because there were more than a few emperors that went crazy. Perhaps most famously, one emperor admitted his horse to the Senate And no one stopped him because they knew to say something even as commonsensical as a horse can't be a senator would mean they would lose their head. That's a totalitarian state. And so Paul takes up this subject for us. It is important and it is one of the most difficult things that we have to face. That is, how can we as Christians live a holy life in an unholy state? What Paul does is he gives us biblical principles as to how to live in the order of this world. Now, this is extremely practical for most of the world's Christians. It is not theoretical. For most of the world's Christians, they live without any of the freedoms that we enjoy and take for granted every single day. The rule of law, freedom of worship. ...representation before a judge. Most of the world... ...does not enjoy any of these freedoms. And so... ...it's not surprising... ...that for most Christians... ...they come to this passage... ...and find it helpful and comforting. When I was teaching in China... ...by far and away... ...these sorts of questions... ...were the most common that I received. I could be teaching on covenant theology... ...or on Presbyterian government... ...or on baptism... And it would not matter. When the time came for questions, they all revolved around, how do we live as Christians when we have a government that persecutes us? What do we do for our children? How can the church in America help relieve the burden that we are under? You see, for most of the world... This is their everyday experience. It's not theoretical. And so if we don't think this passage is important, it's likely because we don't experience real persecution. Now, we may complain, don't we? We have plenty to complain about. But we're not in the same circumstances as other Christians in the Sudan, in India, in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia. And so it is important for us to see what Paul is not telling us. As Americans, we come to this text and we want Paul to speak to our government. We want Paul to give us a treatise on what good government is and how government can be good. We want Paul to teach and instruct our government. But that's not what Paul is doing. What Paul's focus here... ...is to tell Christians how they are to respond to government... ...no matter what kind of government it is. Now we have to keep these important considerations in mind... ...as we look at the text. So let's begin then and look at chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities... ...for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist... Have been instituted by God. Now, before we get to Paul's command, we're going to look at that next week. We will start with his foundation for the command that government is of God, that God is the one who has given us government. Paul actually starts verse 1 with the command to us. But he quickly establishes why we should obey this particular command. It is rooted in the fact that government comes from God. So Christians are to have a certain relationship to government. But Paul tells us that the reason that is so is because government has a certain relationship to God. Paul knows the subject of government is easily abused there were and are some who treat government like a deity. As if it is supreme and it could do whatever it wants. Rulers act like they are gods themselves. Perhaps the best example of this in the Bible is Pharaoh. He literally did believe he was a god. He thought that everything he said must be obeyed because he was a god. He thought that his Power to rule came from the fact that he was a god. A bit more modern, although still some centuries old, example of this would be Louis XIV. One of his famous quotes is that he said, I am the state. The context was people were saying to him, You know, we need to be thinking about how France will do something, how we will enter into wars or make taxation, how we will do what we will do to rule and to lead. And his response was, there is no France, there is me. I am the state. I am France. Whatever I say is what goes. It's that same principle of government being like a deity. Now others go to an opposite extreme. They view all government as illegitimate as if there is no reason to submit to any government. Now, both of these views are false if we understand the foundation of government. Where does government come from? Some see it as a bare will to power. That is, whoever is the strongest or the wealthiest simply takes advantage of others in society. There's no rhyme or reason beyond that. Others view Government is a kind of social contract. Unless people consent to be governed, government cannot and should not exist. Now both of these views, although they're very different, share one commonality, that government is solely created by people. And that is a false view of government. Paul's view is very different Paul tells us that all government comes from God. Do you see what he says here in verse 1? There is no authority except from God. Every authority that there is comes from God. There's no exception. He doesn't say every good authority or no bad authority. No, he is comprehensive. Now this can be difficult for us to understand. Because so much of what we see of governments in the world are against God. Think about China. Think about Muslim nations. They are opposed to the church and the gospel and the people of God. Even here in the United States, we see the government attack Christians and the church. So how could it be that God is the one behind government? Paul is clear here. It's not just some government. It's not just good government. It's not just Christian government. All government comes from God. And he puts it in two ways. First, all authority is from God. And second, every government that exists has been instituted by God. Now first, when Paul writes about the authority that is from God, he means more than power. He means legitimate command exercised by government. God has established legitimate authority on earth and that is government. And so government is a gift from God. Yes it is. You believe me don't you? Because it comes from God's word. Now again it's easy to complain about government because after all there is so much to complain about. But Think about what your life would be like without any government. It would either be chaos or it would be the rule of illegitimate power and might only. Now Paul is very clear here. He could have chosen to use the Greek word for power. There is a perfectly good word to describe power and might and authority in that sense. But Paul intentionally does not use that word. He uses a word that means authority, organization. It implies legitimacy. Paul is not saying that any old power is government. He's saying that there are authorities established by God for governing. And he wants us to see that God has created authority on earth for our benefit. In fact, our greatest complaints against the government are when the government acts contrary to its authority and it uses raw power instead. Isn't that true? We acknowledge that without a legitimate authority, we would be in a very bad way. Now the second thing that Paul reminds us is that those authorities that actually do exist have been instituted by God. Again, this is not a theoretical exercise. Paul is not writing a treatise on government. He says, all those governments that you see, they are instituted by God. Now this means it is not just that they happen to come about or exist. It's not as if God is asleep at the switch or they slip through His fingers and somehow they establish themselves and God has to play catch-up. No. When Paul says that God has instituted all authorities that exist, the word instituted means to direct, to appoint, to set up, to set in order. We have to understand that God in His sovereignty and providence, establishes governments. To deny that would be to deny an attribute of God, that He is sovereign, that He governs all things. And so therefore, we must acknowledge that government itself is not evil. It is not best to be done away with. Now that doesn't mean that everything that government does is right or good. But we must see that government has been given to us by God. So the next question that comes to us is, why has God given government? What is His purpose? If government doesn't exist apart from God, we must see that government's purpose is not distinct or apart from God's purpose. They go together. Now again, this is easy to miss because of sin. Sin causes governments to act in ways contrary to God's purpose, just as it does for individuals. Now, this is no surprise, because governments are made up of individuals. And just as individuals sin and live contrary to God's purpose, they rebel against God, so governments can do this as well. But this does not mean that God does not have an overarching principle for government. His overarching purpose for government is the executing of His providence in the world. Perhaps the best short definition of the providence of God is found in the answer to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, And all their actions. Do you hear the comprehensiveness of that definition? What is outside of the providence of God? Is it any creature in all of creation? No. Is it any action of any creature in all of creation? No all come under the providence of God. And so the minute we say that government is independent of God or that it is outside the purpose of God, we say something about God that is untrue. And we should be far more concerned to be speaking truth about God than about defining government in a way that makes us comfortable. If God does not have a purpose for government, then His arm is indeed short. His providence has limits. He is not in control of all things. And so Paul tells us that God has appointed rulers to carry out His providence. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Whatever government you are under, God has not lost control. We must not act like he has. But, you say, you don't know my situation. My government is wicked. It treats me unjustly. It does wrong things to me. I can give you example after example of how the government does things wrong. Please, you don't need to do that. I see enough of that on Facebook every day. You can keep the details and the examples to yourself, the particulars, because I will agree with you that government does horrible things, that it doesn't always follow God's Word. But what I know is that the Bible says that that does not matter for the general principle that Paul is making here. Now, how do I know that? I know that because of the example of Jesus. Jesus went before a corrupt and a wrong government. He was wrongly accused, and the government unjustly punished him because it wanted popularity, because it wanted to show its control was more important than justice. All we need to do is to go and look at the story of Jesus and Pilate. Did Jesus tell Pilate that his authority was illegitimate? Did Jesus say that Pilate had no authority? Did Jesus say, I'm walking out of here because I don't recognize you because your government is unjust and not good? No, of course not. Listen to what Jesus actually said in John chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Do you hear that? Jesus tells Pilate that he has authority over him. How can that be? Jesus is God. He's the one who spun the universe into existence. He is without beginning and without end. He is perfect in every way. How could Pilate, a fool like Pilate, possibly have authority over Jesus? Because Jesus is the God-man. He is the Messiah. He was born in a specific time, at a specific place, under a specific government. And as such, that government had authority over him. And it wasn't because Pilate was brilliant. It wasn't because Pilate did the right thing. It wasn't even because Pilate was just. We know he was unjust. It was because God had given that authority to Pilate. Now you say, How can that possibly be, Pastor? How can I possibly live with this? I want to remind you of something. You're not the only one who has to obey God. There's a biblical principle to whom much is given, much is expected. And so government needs to answer to God. Not to you, not to me, not to the press. Government needs to answer to God for the way in which they carry out their authority. Now, I don't know about you, but just thinking about that makes me think I don't ever want to be a part of any government anywhere, anytime to have to face that standard. How can Jesus... Accept the authority of Pilate. How can I call you to do that? To accept that God has a purpose even for government. What it requires is for you to look beyond government to God's rule. You are to submit yourself to the providence of God. He has created government. He has a purpose for it. Now does that mean... That everything will go well? Of course not. We live in a world that is filled with sin. A world in rebellion against God. And so we should expect persecution. Paul has been telling us this over and over again. That that is part and parcel of the Christian life. The government we have is not the government that determines your life. The government may think that's the case. You may even be tempted to think that's the case. But that's not true, Paul says. You have to look past government to the one who created government. In conclusion, do you see God in the establishment of government? Do you see God in your government? If you don't, What does that say about you? You are called to live every aspect of your life in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told us in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, that our lives are to be in subjection to Jesus as a consequence of the great salvation that He has given to us. You do yourself no favor by trying to box off a portion of your life from God. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need to be rescued from the fact of sinful or wicked governments. He is using all governments, even those that are wicked and sinful, to fulfill His purpose. Part of that purpose is to make His children into the image of Jesus Christ. We've already seen how Jesus responded to unjust government. Now next week, we will look at our responsibility to respond to government. May the Lord give us the grace we need to obey His commands and to be salt and light in the world. Let's pray.